Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello getting us started, singing a song of freedom. I appreciate Tom as renowned artist and intrepid activist, a singer, a songwriter, and a guitar wizard. Like many of you, he chooses to stand on the freedom side, and he creates a consistent soundtrack, inch by inch, row by row, where freedom can find a space to grow. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Alim and I are gathered here with you under the tree for our seminar on freedom. We consider ourselves energetic members of an insurgent and beloved community in the making. We continue to ask ourselves, and we ask you, where in the world are we, and where are we in the world? How can we best name this social, political, historic moment? What is to be done? We're bound together in a fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. We open each episode with a poem, our by now familiar practice. Today's poem is Identity Card, 1964, by the brilliant Palestinian national poet Mahmoud Darwish, who was born in Albirwa in Galilee, a village that was occupied and later razed by the Israeli army. Because they'd missed the official Israeli census, Darwish and his family were considered, quote, internal refugees or, quote, present absent aliens. This poem was initially approved by the Israeli Education Ministry for use in high schools and later rescinded in reaction to a furor from the right wing that this poem and Darwish himself was dangerous and subversive. Here is the poem, Identity Card 1964, read by Malik Alim. Write down, I am an Arab. My ID card number is 50,000. My children, eight, and the ninth is coming after the summer. Are you angry? Write down, I am an Arab. I work with my toiling comrades in a quarry. My children are eight, and out of the rocks I draw their bread, clothing, and writing paper. I do not beg for charity at your door, nor do I grovel at your doorstep tiles. Does that anger you? Write down, I am an Arab, a name without a title, patient in a country where everything lives on flared up anger. My roots took firm hold before the birth of time, before the beginning of the ages, before the cypress and olives, before the growth of pastures. My father of the people of the plow, not of noble masters. My grandfather, a peasant of no prominent lineage, taught me pride of self before reading of books. My house is a watchman's hut of sticks and reed. Does my status satisfy you? I am a name without a title. Write down, I am an Arab. Hair coal black, eyes brown. My distinguishing feature on my head, a kufi topped by the yigal. And my palms, rough as stone, scratch anyone who touches them. My address, an unarmed village, forgotten, whose streets are nameless and all its men are in the field and quarry. Are you angry? Write down, I am an Arab, 
robbed of my ancestors' vineyards and of the land cultivated by me and all my children. Nothing is left for us, my grandchildren, except these rocks. Will your government take them too, as reported? Therefore, right at the top of page one, I do not hate people. I do not assault anyone. But I get hungry. I eat the flesh of my usurper. Beware. Beware of my hunger and of my anger. That was Identity Card 1964 by Mahmoud Darwish, read by Malik Alim. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to compose an authentic piece of writing from nowhere, the nowhere of the underground and the nowhere of utopia. Today we're shifting slightly and asking you not to write, but to draw. And here's the prompt. Draw a freehand sketch of the Middle East, including Bahrain, Cyprus, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Israel, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Oman, Palestine, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the Syrian Arab Republic, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, and Yemen. Note specifically each place where you find a U.S. military base or presence and pay close attention to the borders of Israel-Palestine. Okay, begin. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Are you an intellectual? I ask teachers this all the time, and they tend to squirm. Intellectual seems too lofty a, a title, something that they wouldn't even want to aspire to. But I disagree. We are all intellectuals. It's part of being human. We think and we think about what we think. And for teachers in particular, being an intellectual and claiming that identity matters. The literary critic Edward Said, author of many books, including the notable Reflections on Exile and the Question of Palestine, explores the contested space of teaching and learning and research in much of his work, perhaps most pointedly in Representations of the Intellectual, in which he offers, in effect, a brief for the ethical and lively conduct of intellectual life. The book is crisp, concise, small in size, the perfect companion to cram into your backpack between your toothbrush and your bottle of water, and as necessary to daily survival as either of those. The intellectual, Said argues, must strive to become an individual endowed with a faculty for representing, embodying, articulating a message, a view, an attitude, a philosophy or opinion, to as well as for a public. For Saeed, this role has an edge to it, for the intellectual must recognize the necessity of opening spaces, raising embarrassing questions, confronting orthodoxy and dogma rather than producing them, and to be someone who cannot easily be co-opted by governments or corporations, and his whole reason for being is to represent all those people and issues that are routinely forgotten or swept under the rug. 
Saeed notes that the world is more crowded than it ever has been with professionals, experts, consultants, in a word, with intellectuals. And this creates, as a central task, the requirement to search out and fight for relative independence from all manner of social and institutional pressures to authentically choose oneself against a hard wall of facts. At bottom, Saeed argues, the intellectual is neither a pacifier nor a consensus builder but someone whose whole being is staked on a critical sense of being unwilling to accept easy formulas or ready-made clichés or the smooth, ever-so-accommodating confirmations of what the powerful or the conventional have to say and what they do. This unwillingness to exceed cannot be simply a passive shrug or a cynical sigh. For Saeed, it must involve as well publicly staking out a space of refusal. Said speaks for a particular stance, a distinct approach to intellectual life. All intellectuals, he argues, represent something to their audiences and in so doing, represent themselves to themselves. Whether you're a straight-up academic, a freelance writer, a down-and-out bohemian essayist, an itinerant speechmaker, an educational researcher, a teacher, a consultant, you represent yourself based on an idea you have of yourself and your function. Do you think you're providing a balanced, disinterested view, or are you delivering objective advice for pay? Are you an expert offering a high-level program evaluation, or are you teaching your students some indispensable truth? Perhaps you imagine you're advocating an eccentric, if important, idea. What do you want to represent? To whom? For what purpose? Toward what end? And in the interest of what social order? Said exhorts intellectuals to work on the basis of a particular principle he takes to be universal, that all human beings are entitled to expect decent standards of behavior concerning freedom and justice from worldly powers or nations, including all institutions, and that deliberate or inadvertent violations of these standards need to be testified to and fought against courageously. This might become a fulcrum for us, although it in no way lays out a neat road forward. Choose the way of opposition, and you do not inherit a set of ready-made slogans, nor a nifty, easy-fit party line. There are no certainties, and for some, this might prove difficult, perhaps even fatal. Nor any gods whatsoever who can be called upon to ease specific personal responsibility, or to settle things once and for all. Each of us is out there on our own, with our own minds and our own hearts, our own ability to empathize, to touch, and to feel, to recognize humanity in its many unexpected postures, to construct our own standards of truth about human suffering that must be upheld despite everything. Real intellectuals, Said writes, are never more themselves than when moved by metaphysical passion and disinterested principles of justice and truth to denounce corruption, defend the weak, defy imperfect or oppressive authority. Said is uninterested in allying with the victors and the rulers, whose very stability he sees as a kind of state of emergency for the less fortunate. He chooses instead to account for the experience of subordination itself, as well as the memory of forgotten voices and persons. 
Said returns again and again to the notion of the authentic intellectual as a person who chooses to create an identity in part as exile, restless, in motion, unsettled and unsettling, a person who does not feel entirely at home in his or her home, and in part as an amateur, exuberant, passionate, driven by authentic interest and concerns and commitments, and just possibly by a powerful sense of delight. The intellectual lives willfully as an engaged outsider, a gratified, if discomforted, disruptor of the status quo, an advocate, a critic of orthodoxy and dogma, stereotype and received wisdom of every kind, all the reductive categories that limit human thought and communication. Said's intellectual works hard to maintain a kind of doubleness, something, I think, akin to Du Bois's double consciousness in which African Americans were compelled, he argued, to see society and the world as both Americans and simultaneously as black people, this duality being a synthesis and therefore greater than either perspective alone. Said urges us to see our individual and collective situations in this way, as both insiders and outsiders, participants in the fullness of social life, but simultaneously removed from and slightly askance to our associations. We must cultivate, then, a state of steady alertness if we're to speak the unwelcome truth as we understand it to power. It is a spirit in opposition rather than in accommodation, Said writes, that grips me because the romance, the interest, the challenge of intellectual life is to be found in dissent against the status quo at a time when the struggle on behalf of underrepresented and disadvantaged groups seems so unfairly weighted against them. This points toward an ideal we might strive for and illuminates as well a series of pitfalls. The ideal is knowledge, enlightenment, and truth on the one hand, and the, on the other, human freedom, emancipation, liberation for all, with emphasis on the dispossessed. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, Academics, and Artists After Hours, where we talk to people who we hope will help us think more deeply and clearly about the world we inhabit, name this political moment, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for freedom and justice. We release our most radical imaginations and ask both what's going on and then equally important, what is to be done. I'm grateful to be joined today by Rashid Khalidi, a longtime friend and comrade. Rashid is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University, author of seven books about the Middle East, including the acclaimed Palestinian Identity, and most recently, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. With his partner, the intrepid Mona Khalidi, he is the father of three brilliant kids and now three stunning grandchildren. Welcome, Rashid. Thanks, Bill. It's good to have you. You're, of course, a model. Many people know you. You're a model of an engaged scholar or a public intellectual. You comment regularly on the in the public square. You're interviewed everywhere. I see you often on Democracy Now! or CNN or somewhere, and I read your op-eds. So I'd like to start in a place that's probably a bit off script for you, but very common for you and I when we're in conversation. And that is, how are the kids? And tell me a quick note about the grandchildren. Kids are good. Um, thank heavens. Uh, I was just on a Zoom call with a bunch of family all over the world, uh, Beirut, Damascus, 
you know, all over the place, including uh, my two daughters uh, and two of my grandchildren. So everybody's wow. good. Wow. One daughter is in France. One daughter is in Chicago. Right. And, and my son in Chile was in the middle of a, a Zoom rehearsal of a play. I have no idea. Yeah, your so son, he couldn't be part of the things. But I gather he's okay since he finally answered us and told us why he couldn't be part of the Zoom call. So, Your son in Chile is a playwright and an artist. Um, the, the daughter in Chicago is a lawyer and runs an extraordinary organization called Pal Legal, Palestine Legal. And your older daughter is in France where she is an archaeologist, yes? That's absolutely right. That's the crew, an amazing crew. And and uh, for many years, we lived as a blended family, and I feel like they're almost my own kids. And We would call it a pod that. today, exactly. Yeah, it would, today it would be a pod, exactly. One of the things that I was fascinated with in your most recent book, and uh, we have to talk about that, but we have to go backwards and forwards, but uh, your most recent book is dedicated to your grandchildren. And I think it's a, it's a very moving dedication. Um, it says, I dedicate this book to my grandchildren, Tariq, Idris, and Noor, all born in the 21st century, who will hopefully see the end of this Hundred Years' War. What were you thinking when, when you wrote that dedication? Well, I mean, uh, all my life and all my parents' life, um, we have all lived with this. Um, right. You know, I was thinking a lot about an earlier generation as I wrote the book, I, I drew on my, my, my own memories, my, my parents' memories, my things they told me and things uncles and aunts and grandparents, uh, uh, experienced as well as others of that, of those generations. And I'm thinking about my grandkids and hoping that they won't have to go a whole life living uh, with this struggle. Um, so that was, that was my thinking. You're call it, you call it the Hundred Years' War, and while we're not going to be able to have the time to go into all hundred years, I actually would like you to talk a bit about that title. And, and mm -hmm. really, the audience for this podcast is not well-versed in Palestine. Maybe you could give us a quick primer about the six um, declarations of war and what you mean by the Hundred Years' War. Where does it begin? Where are we in it now? Right. Um, well, most people who I hope will be able to read this book don't know much about the topic. And what they know, a lot of it is wrong. Uh, one of the things people think they know is that this is a conflict that's been going on since time immemorial. It's complete nonsense. It starts in 1917 when Britain supports the Zionist movement and basically says there's one people in this country, the Jewish people, and the rest of you have no political or national rights. And that's the start of a hundred years war on the Palestinians. The second thing people think they know is it's a struggle between two peoples, like say the French and the Germans. It's not, it's a different kind of struggle. There are now two peoples, but one was planted or planted itself or established itself in Palestine um, as part of what it described as a settler colonial project. This is not my terminology. This is how the Zionist movement saw itself for the first many decades of its existence, implanted by the greatest imperial power of the age, the Great Britain. At that point, Rashid, what what percentage of the population was Jewish in, in, in 1917? Approximately five, six, seven, maybe percent. Okay. We're talking 1917, right. the time of the Balfour right. Declaration. So this is a, an Arab country with a Jewish minority, uh, most of whom had been there for ages, centuries, some of them, you know, forever. Um, but it had been an, uh, 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 an Arab country for, as I say, millennium and a half, 
whatever. Um, the point is not what it had been. The point is that there was no conflict before modern political Zionism. There was no Jewish Muslim or Jewish Arab war going on for 100 years back, 500, 1,000 years back. Didn't happen. So this is a modern conflict arising from modern nationalism, modern settlement colonialism, and modern imperialism, 20th century. Uh, the Zionist movement starts formally in 1897, but it becomes what it what it turns into when the British support this movement. So that's the first declaration of war, the Balfour Declaration, when Britain says, basically, we're going to establish a Jewish national home in an essentially Arab country and never mentions the Arabs or the Palestinians, except to say they can have certain limited rights, but not political rights, not national rights. So that's the first declaration of war. And I go through I don't, want, I don't need to go through each of these declarations of war, but what I'm arguing is that this is not just a, a struggle between uh, uh, the Zionist movement and, and Jews and later Israelis and, and Palestinian Arabs. It's a struggle in which the world, the international community, the great powers, play the central role. You can't understand it without understanding the Balfour Declaration. You can't understand it without understanding how the United Nations partitions Palestine. Basically, the Soviets and the Americans push through a resolution, which gives most of the country to what is still, in 1947, a Jewish minority. So the bulk of the country goes to a minority established with the help of British imperialism over the preceding several decades. That's the second, I call that the partition resolution of 1947, a second declaration of war. And I go on and talk about others. 1967, you have a UN Security Council resolution. And I explain how this was not a resolution designed to resolve the conflict, quote unquote. It was designed to, to essentially uh, do a bunch of things that uh, aided and abetted Israel's uh, attempt to establish itself in the place of the Palestinians. So I go through uh, this, this hundred years talking about several, what I call declarations of war, uh, sometimes by Israel, but largely by international powers or by Israel together with, with uh, the United States or another great power. So this, in many ways, you're describing how Zionism, you know, takes off as a project in 1917. And it's how is Zionism like or unlike other colonial settler colonial projects of that time or of today? Yeah, it's it, like every settler colonial project. It's it's unique, but it's unique in, in, in very specific ways. Most of the others are extensions of a, of a mother country, of a metropole. French settlers in Algeria see themselves as France, and they make Algeria part of France. British settlers in Kenya see themselves as part of Britain. Uh, Zionism was an independent national movement at the same time as it was a settler colonial movement. And what I argue is, yes, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. It's not an either or proposition. It was a result of European anti-Semitism. It was a result of the desire of many Jews to have a homeland in Palestine. All of that is true, but that doesn't negate the fact that it, it could only have been established with the aid of British imperialism. And it saw itself and was a settler colonial movement on the model of what was going on in Algeria or East Africa or other parts of the world. How does it how does it position itself as part of the anti-colonial movement? Because the anti-colonial struggles were going on after World War II, certainly accelerated right. 1945, 46, 47. Right. And the Zionist projects kind of slips into that narrative as well. Right. Um, well, this is one of the great jujitsu moves uh, of modern history. Because uh, the Zionist movement was the coddled stepchild of British imperialism, right up to the moment when the British basically changed their mind in 1939. 
and decide, you know, we're going to fight World War II in the Middle East, and maybe we're going to need these damn Arabs who we've been stepping all over for the last 20 years. And so they basically abandoned many of their promises to the Zionist movement and um, cut a deal slightly more favorable to the Palestinians. And at that point, the Zionist movement has, has a ter- is in a terrible situation because their patron, which has just crushed the Palestinians in a three-year revolt, bringing in 100,000 troops and police to put down uh, a Palestinian uprising, their patron has just basically abandoned them and said, you know, we're not going to do exactly what we said in 1917. At this point, the Zionist movement performs a wonderful, wonderful, brilliant move, which is to find other patrons. And they, they find in the United States and in the Soviet Union, countries that are very eager to shoehorn Britain out of the Middle East and are happy to support Zionism. And that's where the partition resolution of 1947 comes from. Brilliant Zionist diplomacy, but also a willingness on the part of of President Truman and Stalin um, to dislodge Britain from the Middle East, in part by supporting of the creation of Israel. Um, And at that point, Zionism, which has been, as I've said, the coddled stepchild of British imperialism, could not have gotten to where it was in 1939 without the British, without British bayonets and the Royal Air Force bombing and uh, 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 the the, the army destroying villages and executing people who had rebelled, Arabs who had rebelled. They uh, uh, do this enormous, enormously uh, interesting switch and they turn themselves into an anti-colonial movement. Why? Because they are actually fighting the British Uh in the wake of World War II. Uh, underground Zionist terrorist organizations like the Irgun and the Stern Gang are blowing up the British headquarters, killing British soldiers, uh, derailing British trains. And so they remake themselves in the age of decolonization as a quote-unquote anti-colonial movement. It's, it's as I said, it's a, it's a, a wonderful uh, a little piece of jujitsu. I think, though, I think it's interesting how much uh, the history that you develop in this book and in other things that you've written really explains how some of the founding myths hold on and get expressed today. I mean, it's not like these things are all in the past. So we still have a kind of a, a, a mythology of a, of a small, you know, um, aggrieved people uh, under, under the colonial rule fighting for independence and fighting for democracy. How do they how do they continue those myths? How do they go on? The founding myth, of course, is the myth of uh, a land without people. Um, for a people, uh, for without, a people land, without exactly. land. Yeah. There, there are a bunch of these myths that have enormous staying power, um, partly because they're brilliantly uh, expressed in a whole variety of media, and partly because all of them uh, has a kernel of truth lodged in the Western brain. I mean, you start with the Bible. You can't beat the Bible. Um, nobody doesn't right. know the Bible. You know, whatever right. you are, atheist, uh, non-Christian, non-Muslim, non-Jewish, you know the Bible. And that is one of the core uh, uh, bases for this myth of an eternal attachment as a people and as a nation, as a state, to the land of Israel. Well, of course, there's an attachment of the Jews to, to, to Israel, as it, uh, to, to the land, to, to uh, the history uh, of Judaism developing in this country. But that has nothing to do with the modern nation state of Israel. Um, it is, it is re- like all nationalisms, it basically refashions history uh, in a way uh, that makes a fantastically uh, attractive fairy tale uh, of eternal Jewish political 
presence as a state, as a modern 20, 21st, 20th century nation state, going right back to, to uh, David and Solomon. That's the first right. part of the myth. Another part of the myth, as you say, is the land without a people for people without a land. Well, if you say the Jews in Europe can't live there and they need a land, this is the obvious land, but you have to at the same time say, and there's nobody there. And right. so you eliminate, you, 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 you erase the very large Palestinian population, um, which is developing a national consciousness just about the same time as Zionism is developing. Um, and that's another one of these myths, uh, making the desert bloom, uh, tiny little beleaguered Israel. Um, Israeli historians have written about the, 19, the 1948 war in which Israel lost 6,000 soldiers killed as one in which they were on top from the very beginning to the very end. They were stronger than the Arabs from the very beginning to the end. So, you know, multiple Arab armies, you know, invade. And, and you say, you say all of these tens of millions of Arabs and this few hundred thousand Jews, but in fact, on the battlefield, they actually turn out to have been superior from the very beginning. So there are, there's a whole plethora of these myths, which have enormous staying power. You, you write about six um, declarations of war. And as this book was published, there was a, maybe a seventh declaration of war, the moving of the capital to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel to Jerusalem, the uh, Jared Kushner, uh, uh, I forget how they called it. They called it the peace plan of the century or something like that. Um, and, and maybe say a word about that, about the Trump Netanyahu Kushner uh, moment. And how that also built on these foundational myths. Well, the book went to press um, before uh, uh, Trump revealed his so-called peace plan. Um, but in fact, I, it's all prefigured in what I write about the first couple of years of the Trump administration. Um, basically, the Trump administration uh, took dictation from Israel. Uh, what exactly do you guys want? We want this, 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 and this. And the Trump administration basically gave them their you know, most... Uh, their most fevered wish list. Um, and that's all summed up in a plan, which is essentially a plan for the Palestinians to capitulate and accept Israeli domination permanently um, within a context in which there'll be one sovereign power forever, which is Israel. And the Palestinians will be relegated to subservient status in some, uh, in, a, in, a, in a sort of archipelago of Bantustans. Um, in some, that's the, that's the Kushner uh, it's actually the Netanyahu peace plan. I was going to say, it really doesn't even represent Israeli opinion, particularly. It represents the position of the hardest of the hard right in Israel, correct? Well, the domin the, what has been the dominant force in Israeli politics essentially since the, the, the late 1970s. But it oh, doesn't it represent okay. all Israelis, no. Right. Is there an Israeli peace movement? There's not much of one, no. Um, and part of the problem is that people there have been to a very large extent, I guess I hate to say use the word, but brainwashed into assuming, first of all, that they're vulnerable and that they can't make any concessions to the Palestinians. And secondly, into the idea that uh, Jewish rights trump everybody else's rights. And if you start off from a position of victim, Israel is always the victim of what the Arabs are doing. The Jews have been victims throughout history. Uh, then you get into this defensive, defensive crouch uh, where you don't make concessions and where you have rights that have to be exercised at the expense of other people's rights. And most Israelis, Zionism basically is, is a, 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 an ideology which posits that in Palestine, and, and, and now the Israeli state has, has codified this in a law in 2018, in Palestine, there's only one people 
with a legitimate right of national self-determination, and that's the Jewish people. And you start from that premise, which is now a law passed by the Knesset in 2018, the Jewish nation state law. Um, and you're talking about a fundamental principle of, of structural permanent inequality. And most Israelis, unfortunately, buy into that. Some don't, many don't, but they're a minority. But it, it really raises a question. That 2018 law is quite draconian and quite... And I think if you said to most Americans, would you support apartheid in South Africa? I mean, in South Africa, no. How about in Israel? No, uh, we do not support. We tend to be people who think uh, in terms of even when we can't live up to it, we think one person, one vote makes sense, equal rights and so on. I think you should be careful about this because it's very clear there are a lot of pe- a lot of Americans who don't believe that. Well, of course, there are a lot of Absolutely. people who. There are a lot of people in this country who believe, for example, that votes in Philadelphia or votes in uh, uh, black, do- predominantly black cities in the United States don't count as much as white votes. Well, and for whom this is a white country or should be a Christian country or some variation of those. those right. So, so, in a sense, those two positions actually do go together in Netanyahu and Trump. Exactly. Do represent that exactly. Some people have more rights than other people in this in this worldview, and some I've people long, are the real people of the country, and others exactly. are not. Uh, exactly, and I've long thought that the founding myth of America goes very hand in glove with the founding myth of Israel, a people without land for a land without people, right. um, and and the kind of uh, ethnic cleansing and erasure of the of the indigenous population, and that's very similar. Very, well, one very of the much. things that I try and talk about in this book is that, you know, some people say, well, you know, this is a completely artificial entity, Israel, and these are just settlers and they don't have a national, um, they don't exist as a national unit. And I, I, I think that's a, a, that's, a, that's a form of blindness on the part of, of some people. Yes, of course, Israel is the result of a settler colonial project aided by imperialism, but then so were many nation states in the world today, the United States foremost amongst them. Mm. Um, There is an American people, there is a United States, it is a national entity founded, of course, on uh, extermination of the native population and slavery, but that those roots, however much we try and hide them or however much we recognize them, don't invalidate the fact that this is a national entity and the same is true of Israel. It was it was it was the hand it was it was the handmaid of imperialism uh, uh, before nineteen before World War Two. Uh, it was a settler colonial movement. It did what it did to the Palestinians, expelling more than half of the Palestinian population in nineteen forty eight. But it, it is a national reality, um, and the one thing doesn't invalidate the other. A settler colonial heritage doesn't mean you're not a nation state. New Zealand is a nation state. So is Australia. So is Canada. So is the United States. It does make the solution more complicated, and it means that we ought to pay attention to the language we use. Yeah, we ought to pay attention to history and to the language we use. So even when we say concessions, even when that gets thrown about, is it really, are there really two warring peoples and and one is giving concessions, or is it it really so two-sided? That's exactly the other, one of the points I'm trying to make in this. This is a war on the Palestinians by not just the Zionist movement and later the state of Israel, but by a a, a war which is sanctioned by the League of Nations and later by the United Nations, and in which there are not two equal parties. There's one party being dispossessed, and there's one party doing the dispossession. They're not on a a footing of equality. Um, They're not like the Germans and the French. 
This is not an age-old conflict between two peoples who are, you know, well-established. It's a a conflict, essentially, which has those characteristics of a settler colonial war and of a war supported from the outside. Uh, Israel operates on a unique basis in the world. It's not just the almost $4 billion annually that we support the Israeli war machine with. Uh, It's not just diplomatic support. It's not just intelligence cooperation. It's also billions of dollars a year that go in tax-free donations from the United States to Israel. It's also the way our laws are configured to uh, uh, assist and support Israel. In the package that was passed by Congress in December, a half a billion dollars went to Israel for vaccinations. Um, Wow. People in this country are having trouble getting vaccinations. Israel has the highest rate of vaccination in the world thanks to our tax dollars. So there are these, all of these invisible forms of support, and some of them, few of them are visible, without which this project would not be as successful uh, as it has been. So of course it's not a, a struggle on a basis of equality between two peoples. There are two peoples, but each one comes from an entirely different place with an right. entirely different background. It's like talking about white, the white citizens of South Africa and the, and the black and colored citizens of South Africa. Now they are citizens on a basis of equality, but they come from entirely different places. And that, those historical roots still play out even after truth and reconciliation, even after the end of apartheid in South Africa. And they will play out whenever this is settled in Palestine um, because we're two peoples, but we're coming from completely different places. In terms of popular opinion in the United States or consciousness and awareness, I know that your daughter Dima is very involved in kind of fighting back against one other official kind of um, pillar of support for Israel, which is the suppression of speech and the right. suppression of, of, of uh, any support for uh, the BDS movement. Maybe you could say a word about that. What's going on right. here, the BDS movement and, and how we fight back? Well, BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. And it's a grassroots movement started by Palestinian civil society a little over 10 years ago. A nonviolent um, movement also Entirely as well. nonviolent uh, in the tradition of uh, great boycott movements, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, uh, the, the lunch counter boycotts and the bus boycotts in the South. But going right back to Irish independence movement, which is where the term boycott comes from. Irish peasants opposed to British colonial settler landlords boycotted the land agent of some lord um, whose name was Captain Boycott. So this is a a historic weapon of the weak, a nonviolent weapon of the weak against their oppressors. And there are people trying to shut down boycott divestment sanctions on the entirely spurious grounds that it is quote-unquote anti-Semitic or poor little Israel is being singled out. Um, and it's as American, boycott is as American as apple pie. Mm. I mean, where would where would the civil rights movement have been without boycotts? Where would South Africa be without, but where would Gandhi have been without boycotts? Mm-hmm. Um, where would the Irish have been without boycotts? It's by the way, a tactic the Irish used from the 1880s right up until their independence in 1921, alongside a bunch of other tactics, of course, some of which were violent. Um, my, my point is that, uh, in a situation where I think sympathy in certain sectors of American society is growing for the Palestinians and a more critical attitude towards Israel is emerging, there's a panic among supporters of Israel who are used to basically being able to float any stupid lie and having everybody accept it. Uh, There's a panic amongst them because some of their ridiculous assertions are no longer accepted. 
uh, and people are beginning to think slightly more critically. Not everybody, you know, there are sectors of the Republican Party that have gone way off the deep end on this, as in so many other things. Uh, but among Democrats, among young people, among the younger sector of the Jewish community, uh, in churches, in some unions, there is now more openness to thinking about some of these issues. And this is driving them crazy. And their reaction is not to meet the arguments, but to shut down debate. I see. <laughs> shut down the BDS movement, stop on-campus activism, essentially by this completely spurious libel that anybody who's involved in activism for Palestine, for Palestinian rights, is an anti-Semite. Right. Um, that's the latest um, battlefield in this, in this struggle, essentially to, to squelch free speech. It seems like a, uh, an indication of weakness more than strength. On the well, the funny the thing is we're talking about very powerful organizations, some of them rooted in the Jewish community, some of them rooted in the evangelical Christian community, some of them in Israel and some of them in Europe with unli- almost unlimited funds. I mean, you have billionaires like the late Sheldon Adelson, who contributed a ton of money to these things and many others. Haim Saban, big cable guy who made a ton of money off of cable. He's one of the biggest donors to the Democratic Party. These guys have put literally millions and millions and millions of dollars into this. So the, the interesting thing is that they're panicking in spite of the strength of, of these institutions and, and the amount of money that they have. And, the, you know, they have hot and cold running lawyers filing frivolous lawsuits, you know, right and left, uh, which are meant to take up people's time and divert people and waste their energy. And, you know, that I agree with you. It is a sign of, of panic on their part that they are having to resort to, resort to these measures. But it's interesting that they will not meet the argument. They will not debate the moral issue or the political issue. They're only interested in stopping it. So that's, a, I think, On an important... its merits, most of the arguments they make fail. It, you know, it's interesting. When you and I were young, um, this, the, inside the United States, the issue that galvanized people, the international issue that galvanized progressive people was Vietnam. A generation later, it was South Africa. My sense is that today, young people, activists, Black Lives Matter, have understood that the, that the issue that really defines you as an internationalist is the rights of Palestinians. Is that the feeling you get? Well, yeah, I think among younger, more progressive groups and, and, and among many others, actually some older people and some people who are not that progressive. I think there's a growing understanding of, you know, it's a fancy term of the intersectionality of the connections between things like Black Lives Matter and the, the, the way in which black people in the United States have always been treated from slavery through the destruction of Reconstruction through Jim Crow, through the current way in which people are shot down in the street by policemen who have because they happen to be black. Um, there's an understanding of connection between that and understanding of a connection between what was done to Native Americans in this country and what's happening in Palestine. Right. Same policing tactics are being used. Uh, many American police forces are sent to Israel to train, and what they're training they're trying to do is to, is to do colonial co- colonial suppression. Uh, in effect, treating the inner cities the way that the Israelis treat their Palestinian subjects. Um, at, at the same time, what was done to Native Americans is what Israel is in a certain measure trying to do to Palestinians. Hem them in on reservations so that Israel can take most of the land and Israeli Jewish citizens can live you know, in suburban lifestyle uh, uh, with Palestinians huddled around them in, in, in ghettos. 
um, and you know, it very much what was done in this country, or in Canada, or in Australia, uh, to the indigenous populations. So I think people are understanding that there are connections like that. They're not the same. The United States is not the same as Palestine or or Canada or Australia, but th- there are there are similarities, and people are well, understanding that. And Vietnam is not the same as the United States and South Africa. But I think it's interesting, for example, that a portrait of George Floyd is painted on the on the apartheid wall in in Israel or the fact that the Palestinian uh, liberation movement sent greetings of solidarity to the young people in Ferguson. I mean, I I think this is as well as tips on how to deal with tear gas manufactured by the same people who send it to Israel and, and give it to the police department in Ferguson. Exactly. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. You are the Edward Said professor uh, at Columbia University, and Edward Said was certainly a mentor uh, to you and a friend and a a giant. Maybe you'd say a word about Edward's legacy. And one of the books you gave me many, many years ago was The Question of Palestine by Edward Said. Maybe you'd say a word about Edward's contribution and, and walking in his footsteps. Right. Well, I mean, Edward, um, Edward and a couple of other people, but Edward preeminently um, was perhaps the first person who was able to present a Palestinian narrative to the American public through his writings, through his media appearances, through his 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 activities on various levels as a public intellectual at universities and all kinds of forums all over all over the country and globally actually, um, and he he had a he had a remarkable understanding of both the Palestine question, uh, an open minded and humanitarian understanding of it. He had an understanding, having lived much of his life in the United States, of where Zionism came from, of what anti semitism was of how uh, uh, American Jews felt. Um, and he was able to speak um, to them in a language that was remarkably effective, which, again, explains the incredible ferociousness of the attempt to shut him up, mm. because he was so effective. <laughs> um, and, uh, I mean, he, he, he operated on multiple levels. I mean, he was a, he was a literary critic and a cultural critic who created almost a field or several fields and influenced several others uh, in academia. Uh, You know, we don't need to talk about that, but uh, he revolutionized the way we think about Middle East studies. He revolutionized uh, the understanding, many people's understanding of literature and its connection to political contexts. He, uh, post-colonial studies, even though he later repudiated many of its, many of its uh, ideas, uh, essentially is, is is a development of some of his ideas. And I could go on and on and on. On top of that, he wrote about Palestine in a way that nobody else had ever done. Um, right. And he talked about he had, he put forward ideas that nobody's really ever. He said one of the things that's so striking is in a situation where the only people who are allowed to talk are people who speak on behalf of Israel. Palestinians don't have what he called permission to narrate. Right. If they allow us to say anything, they put somebody else next to us. So you would not have somebody who is talking about you know uh, the problems of incarceration together with somebody who's a a, a member of the of the prison guards union. You wouldn't have somebody talking about the Holocaust uh, uh, having to be paired with a Nazi. You wouldn't have somebody talking about Jim Crow paired with, you know, a segregationist. But right. if you're a Palestinian, you can't get up. To, oh, no, no, we have to have some. We had a case like this at Columbia 
weeks ago. I remember. Where a group of students wanted to bring a panel, I forget on what, and a faculty member objected, you have to have balance. You wouldn't have balance on any, you wouldn't dream of doing, talking about that with any other topic, but on this, you do not have permission to narrate. You can't speak independently. It has to be balanced by the other point of view. Uh, and th this is the kind of thing that he, he, he figured out and elucidated in a way nobody had ever done before. Some of what you're, some of what you're explaining um, comes from a book that I ask my graduate students to read, which is um, Representations of the Intellectual, which, which I think is one book. of the finest books. Uh, very simple. It's his lectures from uh, the BBC uh, collected as a book. Brief and lectures, I think, right. Yeah, it's very brilliant. But the other thing, the other thing about Edward as a model is I've often thought the Palestinian people never had a more firm and powerful champion than Edward Said. And the Palestinian leadership never had a harsher critic. And there's something about, about that balance that I admire so deeply. You know, the, the idea that you could be both. He loved this idea uh, of speaking truth to power. It's central to that book that you mentioned, Representations of the Intellectual. Uh, he, 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 he himself did exactly what you said, which is to say that even as he was by far the most eloquent advocate for Palestine, he was probably the harshest critic of the Palestinian leadership, even as he was talking to them and work, trying to work with them. And later on, when he just gave up on them. Um, right. So he was speaking truth, even I mean, the limited power that the Palestinians have. He was speaking truth to power on that level, just as he was critiquing American foreign policy or Israeli policies. But that's really the point, isn't it? That you have to not only oppose the dogma and the authoritarianism of the enemy, you have to oppose your own dogma. And he was right. a master of that. He was a master of that. Two other books you gave me over the years, and we gave each other books for many, many years. One I'd like you to refer to is, uh, say a word about, is Palestine Walks. And the second mm -hmm. is the book. You're talking about Sadi, Sadi uh, sorry, Reza Shadi's book. Yeah, Raja's book. Oh, yeah, and then the book. second second book you gave me was Kirbet Kiza. I may be pronouncing that wrong. Kirbet Am I pronouncing Kiza, that? By an Israeli, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah, that. maybe say a word about those two books, and then I want to move on to a couple other things. Kirbet Kiza, I'm forgetting the author. Um, His name is Yizar. Yizar's book, Kirbet Kiza, is about the disappearance. Right. Uh, at base, it's about the disappearance of Palestinian villages. And why is this so important? It's important because one of the things that happens in Palestine is not just that people are removed, but the places they lived are often basically raised and forests are grown over them or new, new Israeli settlements are built on them. Um, and then the names are changed. Right. And the history has changed. So, you so know, it's total erasure, total erasure. Complete erasure of a history, a culture, a people, and the material signs of their existence in that, in that place previously. And that's what this, this is a, it's a wonderful book. It was published, I think in the fifties in Israel, in Hebrew. But he was a, he was a, a foot soldier. I mean, he witnessed, right. it's not, the thing that's so striking about the book is it's very deliberately, calmly descriptive. It's not a screed and it's not an ideological book. It's the description of the disappearance of a village and a people. I mean, one of the strange things about Israel is that you have a, 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 a very large number of intellectuals, a very large number of people who understand perfectly what's going on and see it clearly. 
and are completely at odds or are very largely at odds with the with the the, the conventional view put forward by the state and its its partisans. Um, and they are a remarkable asset uh, to anybody who really wants to understand things. I mean, I depend on Israeli historians who dug up stuff from the Israel State Archives that nobody had ever seen before. Some of them, I don't like their work, but there's no arguing with the materials that they have unearthed. And some of them, I like their work very much. And this is true of Israeli poets. This is true of Israeli artists. This is true of Israeli filmmakers. This is, this is true of Israeli dramatists and, 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 and writers. Um, and you can learn a great deal if you have an open mind and understand some of these things or come to understand some of these things through accessing these things through these Israeli eyes. I mean, one of the things that's now happening is that we're beginning to access some of the same things through Palestinian eyes. You're beginning to have publications of books by Palestinian historians. You're beginning to have personal narratives and autobiographies and novels written by Palestinians that give you a completely different view of some of the same things. Um, it's not the same thing to have an Israeli critically view his or her own history or his or her own, own experiences and to have a Palestinian do the same thing. From both perspectives, you're going to get something. Um, right. And one of the good things about a book like Herbert Chiza is it gives a, an incredibly perceptive Israeli perspective on some of these, this destruction and uprooting and so on and so forth that happens right. starting in 1948. Right. And then a word about Palestine Walks, Raja's book. Well, Raja Shadi is this extraordinary individual who um, was probably the foremost Palestinian human rights lawyer. He establishes the, the leading Palestinian human rights organization called Al-Haq, A-L-H-A-Q. Um, and he worked tirelessly for decades as a lawyer. His father had been a lawyer. His uncle had been, had been a lawyer. Um and he has become an author. Um, he's written at least a half a dozen books, of which I, this is my favorite, I think, Palestinian Walks. And what he talks about, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, he and his wife Penny are, are passionate hikers. They've always hiked all over the countryside. And he talks about how hard that is in some respects today because of what has been done to the countryside. Um, as a result of colonialism, as a result of the settler colonialism, which has taken over and closed off so many spaces uh, to Palestinians in order to create an essentially Jewish space, Jewish only space. I mean, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to say, but that's what they've done. That's what's meant. That's, that's the intended objective of this settler project inside the occupied territories, inside the occupied West Bank. Um, and it's not a political book. It's a book about hiking in Palestine, right. and you can't hike in Palestine without the politics intruding. And and it very gracefully brings them in, though that's not his main objective. Um, and the interesting thing is he won, um, he won this enormously important prize um, with this book. Uh, I'm forgetting the the, the the George Orwell Prize, um, and the book was enormously successful all over the world except in the United States. Right. Uh, for thank some reason, for the book just died. It disappeared. Right. Well, thank you for giving it to me because I am devoted to it and I've given out copies as well. I think it's a, it's extraordinary. And both of these books are really books that are not overtly political books and yet have a absolutely huge detonation of political understanding when you read these elegant descriptions of, uh, of the normal 
aspects of life. You know, it's they're just, both by very fine writers. I think that's what that's what uh, that's what drives yeah. drives the, the why they're so so why they have such an effect. Very compelling and very very detailed. But but speaking of fine writers, you are really a fine writer, and you're histories are easy to read from, you know, non-intellectuals like myself. Um, I just, I find, I find, I, I find your writing very compelling. You're a storyteller, but this book is different than any of your other books that I've read. And, and in this way, this has memoir in it. This has your personal story and the story of your family going back generations. Maybe say a word about why this book is takes that turn, that turn toward personal essay. Well, let me start by saying, um, if you listen to my harshest critics, the harshest of whom is my wife, Muna, um, you would not say I'm a very good writer. Uh, I've been blessed with uh, at least two very good editors, one of whom you introduced me to, Helen Atwan at Beacon, right. Right. Um, and the other, Riva Hocherman uh, at Metropolitan. Um, who, by the way, was Reza's editor and the editor of many of the, my favorite books by Israeli and Arab authors. Um, so I've been very lucky in my editors. Um, this book is different than anything I've ever written because I didn't write it as a conventional history. All the others I wrote within the very constraining confines of how historians are supposed to write. You know, you're supposed to rigorously exclude yourself from the narrative. You write in the third person. Um, you, you try and tell a, a story from the documents, from your sources, and that's all you're supposed to do. And everything else I've written, even those, even those books that were meant for a general public, like Resurrecting Empire, um, where I'm trying to, you know, influence people to understand how the United States going to war in Iraq is founded on this history. Uh, so it's a, it's a historical book, but it's, it's intended to affect people. And it's written with a sense of urgency that, you know, some of my other books are certainly not written. But this one, however, 100 Years War in Palestine is different in that, as you say, I'm incorporating material, not just from family memoirs and not just from other people's memoirs who are not members of my family, but also from my own personal experience. Uh, so I start the book with a letter written by an ancestor of mine to Theodore Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement. I start another, another chapter is full of stuff from my uncle's memoirs or from my wife's grandfather's memoirs or from the memoirs of somebody I knew very well, uh, Yusuf Sayyid. Uh, so I, I, I use a lot of personal material that I have access to from my own family or friends. Um, and then I bring in my own personal experiences uh, increasingly as the book goes on. Obviously, I wasn't born in 1917 or 1939 or 1947, um, but I described something my father told me that happened in 1947. Uh, you know, that particular story, uh, maybe we could stop there for a minute. And when you were about 19 years old, your father called you in. Right. He wanted, and it was near the end of his life, and he wanted to tell you, and he told you to pay close attention. Maybe just tell that one story, because sure. it's a, emblematic of the, what the book does. Yeah. Uh, he was terminally ill, and he knew it. He'd had cancer, he'd had a recovery, and then he'd had a recurrence, and he knew he was done for. We didn't know it, but he knew it. Um, and so he calls me in, and he says, sit down, listen. And he tells me this story about something that happened to him in 1947, when he was in the Middle East with my mother and was on his way from Jerusalem to Amman to meet with then uh, Amir Prince Abdullah, later on King Abdullah, the, the founder of the kingdom of Transjordan, Jordan today. Um, 
and he was going to 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 tell the king about um, a project that he was working on with other Arab Americans, and his his older brother. Uh, my dad was the baby of a family of, of nine brothers and sisters, and his eldest brothers, his four eldest brothers, were officers in the Ottoman army when my dad was born. So there's like a generation between my eldest uncles and my my aunt, my oldest aunt, and my father, who was born in 1915. So. When his older brother calls him, it's, you know, he does exactly, you know, he immediately goes and sees his, his brother, who at this stage is, is one of the leading Arab politicians in Palestine. And they're in, the Palestinians are in a dire strait situation. In, in this is November 1947. And he goes in and, and my uncle tells him, you're going to go to Abdullah, right? You're going to go visit him. He says, yes. He says, I want you to take a message. And he says, what's the message? He says, tell Abdullah, thank you very much for your offer to extend protection to us. There's a word in Arabic, wasaya, means protection or control. Uh, thank you very much, we can't accept. And my father says, that's gonna ruin my visit. And my uncle tells him, you, he doesn't listen to us when we tell him, try and tell him, you're he, my brother. If you tell him, he'll listen. Go and do it, get out, I'm busy. So he chases my poor dad out. My father says, oh, my visit's screwed. He goes to a man, he tells the king, about this project in the United States. The king is not interested in the least. He doesn't care about the United States. All he cares about is Britain. His army is officered by the British. It's paid by the British. It's armed by the British. He's basically a British stooge. He doesn't care about the United States. And then my father said, and by the way, your, your, your highness, I, I have to tell you, my brother sends a message and the king perks up. And he says, thank you very much for your offer of wasaya, of protectorship, but you know, we can't accept. And the king at this point stands up. And when you know, the king stands up, the audience is over. And, and my father said, oh, damn, oh, damn, it's all over. You know, uh, my visit is ruined. At this point, my father tells me, I'm sitting there listening to this story in the dining room. My father says, somebody comes in and says, your majesty, the, British, the BBC has just announced that the General Assembly of the United Nations has voted for the partition of Palestine. So we know it's November 29th, 1947, from the, wow. the incident that happens at that moment. And the king turns to my dad and he says, you Palestinians have refused my offer. You deserve what's going to happen to you. And he stalks out. So my father says, remember this. <laughs> wow. He did, of course. <laughs> wow. It was such a striking story. And I was yeah. just historically literate enough at 19. You know, I was a college sophomore at the time. I was just historically literate enough to understand how important this, this story was. Well, the, the book is peppered with stories like that. Let me ask you one last thing as we wind up, and that is... Where do we go from here? Um, what is freedom uh, for the Palestinian people? What is it that we as Americans should be conscious of and working on? Well, the first thing that we have to be conscious of is that we're a large part of the problem. Mm. Without the United States doing what it does on behalf of Israel, Israel would not be able to do what it does. It kills with American weapons. It operates with American money it is only able to function internationally because of American support. It's also true to some extent of Europe, but the United States is the real sponsor of this project today. So that's the first thing. We are responsible. We're not some third party sitting off in the Atlantic. We are engaged in a war on the Palestinians. When Israel bombs Palestinians, as they did in Gaza, killing thousands, a couple thousand people, most of whom are women and children, we are responsible. Those are American weapons. Those are American, that's American ordnance. Those are American artillery pieces, American shells. And American ascent. And it's American ascent also, American 
So that's yeah. the first thing we have to realize. We are not a, a neutral third party. We're not an honest broker. Um, the second thing I think we have to realize is that the kinds of principles that supposedly animate a, um, a democracy, a liberal democracy, of uh, all men and women are being created equal, has to be applied in Palestine. You can't have rights for Jews that Palestinians don't have access to. You can't say, for our security, we have to have X, Y, and Z. And if that leads to your oppression, tough, tough luck. And that is a system we perpetuate and, and claim involves the only democracy in the Middle East. This is a country that for, since 1967, for 50 now going on 54 years, has completely deprived of rights a half a million people. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry, five million people. Uh, what kind of only democracy in the Middle East is it that has under its boot heel of its military occupation a population almost as large as its own? That's not, that's not maybe a democracy for people inside Israel who are Israeli citizens with big variations between Jews and Arabs, but it's not a democracy insofar as it has run the lives for three generations of going on five or six million Palestinians. So that's, a, that's, a, that's something we have to understand, the, the structural discriminatory nature of that system, which we enable and support, is not something that should be acceptable in terms of our values. And the last thing I would say is the kinds of things that we would expect and demand for ourselves and which we're trying to achieve in this country of equality and justice have to be the principles on which any resolution of this struggle is based. It can't be what's sauce for the goose is not sauce for the gander. Israel can get this, this, and this. The Palestinians can't have that. That's just not acceptable. You would not say that, that black Americans can't have the vote or can't have access to clean drinking water. Nobody accepts that. It happens, but it's the kind of thing that we're trying to deal with. And there's no attempt to deal with it in the case of Palestine. Systemic racist uh, 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 laws, systemic inequality, systemic discrimination is baked into the system. And that's the kind of thing that has to be addressed in any resolution of this. So the new administration, the end of the Trump administration, has seen some fairly interesting openings, for example, for environmental justice. Do you see any openings around Palestine, Israel? To be very blunt, no. Um, okay. There are a couple of openings in the Middle East. I think that the, the change in policy on Yemen or towards Saudi Arabia is a positive thing. The fact that they seem to be willing to go back to the nuclear accord with Iran could be a positive thing. I'm not sure they're going to be able to do it or they will do it. But in any case, the willingness to do it is better than the Trump administration's approach. Um, but on Palestine, I've seen no signs of anything but, but a cosmetic uh, mm. changes. Uh, they may resume funding for UNRWA. I mean, that was just a, a, a egregiously cruel action taken by the Trump administration. If they were- What was that? What was that? What was the cruel the United action? United Nations Relief and Works, Works Agency right. provides essentially education and health care uh, right. to a, a proportion of Palestinian refugees. I mean, most Palestinian refugees don't depend on UNRWA, but there are a couple of million of them who do. And the Trump administration just cut U.S. support for that, mm. cut support for uh, the, the Palestinian Authority, uh, uh, closed down the PLO mission in Washington, shut down the consulate in East Jerusalem. Those minor measures may be, may be reversed. And those will amount to entirely cosmetic changes. The United States would have to take a much more fundamental look at basic issues like Israel's security is taken to be understood as insecurity for the Palestinians. We, that's, not, that's not security. 
that's actually creating in the long term insecurity for Israelis. Mm-hmm. But that's what the Israeli government demands. You support everything we do in the name of quote unquote security. So if we kill 1,500 women and children in Gaza, that's to protect our people, um, whatever, uh, as happened in 2014. Um, and those things, those are big, those are changes that are going to be very hard to affect. I mean, the good news is that for the first time in American history, there's a large body of legislators, a couple dozen in the House and a couple in the Senate, who actually understand this. Um, Bernie Sanders and two other senators voted against the, the, the amendment to the big uh, uh, pandemic relief bill that was tacked on, of course, by uh, supporters of Israel, that the United States should keep its embassy in Jerusalem. So you have three senators who actually said, no, why should we? Who are the other two? Elizabeth Warren? No, I don't think Warren was one of them. Um, one was a senator from Delaware whose name I don't recall, and I think the other was Van Hollen of Michigan. Yeah, you know what's interesting about about Sanders and Warren and maybe these other two is that during the campaign, both of them were willing to say things that most oh, American yeah. politicians have never said. I mean, they were willing. And, and what's weird is uh, Bernie Sanders sounded like a wild-eyed radical because he said Palestinian people are human. They deserve rights. Right. And you say, oh, my God, that's outstanding. You know, but I mean, that's kind of a common sense position in Europe, right? But, you would think. But he, but here it reads here it reads as absolutely wild-eyed, right? The attacks on Sanders and other supporters of Palestinian rights are just basically smears. They're, they're right. described as anti-Semites, even if they themselves are Jewish. They're described as anti-Israel, and all they're saying is that we're critiquing the policy of this nation-state who we support to the hilt in everything it does. Right. But my point that I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that we now actually do have in the American public space people. Uh, who are able to advocate for Palestine or, or, or able to make criticisms of Israeli policies. Um, Betty McCloskey, uh, uh, McCollum, sorry, uh, uh, I believe she's a, a representative of a district in Minnesota, Minneapolis, uh, has a bill to stop uh, mistreatment of Palestinian children in the Israeli uh, uh, detention system. And uh, she has two dozen co-sponsors in the House. Uh, and a bunch of people who've just been elected are going to probably sign on to the new version of that bill in the new ho- in the new uh, session of the House. So that that's new and that's good. Uh, there are beginning to be people who are willing to go out and take the kind of shelling that they're going to get, the bombardment they're going to get from supporters of Israel uh, to say things that have never been said by by American politicians before. Right. But, you know, as somebody who believes that we need to build power from below, I guess I think that you're giving us a couple of very important pieces of advice. And that is we have to speak outward. We have to speak openly. We have to talk about the rights of Palestinian people just like any other people. And we have to get through the myths that Israel has generated and that the United States government generates. And one way to do that is to speak up, speak out often. I think many of the Black Lives Matter folks are doing this. And I also recommend that people pick up the Hundred Years' War on Palestine as background and really a a text that can take you to where you need to go in terms of developing a narrative to counter the retrograde stuff that we're fed every day. I mean, this is something I say to people. They say, what can I do? And one of the things you can do is to inform yourself, to just become better informed. There are multiple sources. You can read my book or you can read other books. But it's really, really important. Uh, this, is, this is a campaign, a war, a, a, a struggle in which misinformation, disinformation, mythology 
is essentially at war with, you know, a, a basic a reality based ver- view of the world. Exactly. In exactly. And it's really, really important to understand that reality, however you get to it. Well, and I think I think it's it's worth noting, Rashid, that um, at this moment when we're having a fight in this country about what is the truth, it behooves us to say, let's look at the world through different eyes. Let's understand our larger truth and not be you know, whipsawed by propaganda, which is what we've been all these years. Listen, I can't thank you enough for joining me, Rashid. It's been great seeing you and talking to you. I've learned a lot. And uh, give Mona my best. And let's have a dinner over Zoom very, time, very soon. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Talk to you soon, Rashid. I hope so. Take care. Say hi to Bernadine. I will. Before we say goodbye for today, I have a homework assignment. Americans are renowned all around the world for our anemic knowledge of both history and geography. Return to the freehand sketch of the Middle East that I asked you to do earlier and do a bit of research. Now create a more accurate portrayal of that part of the globe. Make a multicolored or topographical map or make a diorama. And by all means, read Rashid Khalidi's The Hundreds Years' War on Palestine. Okay, you all, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends Damon and Daniel from the podcast Ergo, and to Malik Alim, producer, engineer, and co-conspirator. Under the Tree is written and hosted by Bill Ayers, produced and edited by me, Malik Alim. Our music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a robust cry for freedom. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.